This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website, cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. by the Midland Conservation District. My name is Benjamin Van Dyke, and I am the technical assistant for the Midland Conservation District. Conservation districts, for those that don't know, are local units of government that work on a local scale to help local landowners with local conservation issues. Originally formed in the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, conservation districts have widened their scope to help landowners with a variety of conservation needs. Wildlife habitat, erosion issues, and other needs, such as our annual tree sale. The Conservation District works with local landowners and the local USDA service office in order to provide conservation needs at the ground level for people right here in Midland County. One of these issues that we deal with is invasive species. This is our topic for today's show, and some of you might not be familiar with the topic of invasive species, but it's a very important and a very relevant topic uh, to our environmental issues that we deal with today. Before coming to the Conservation District, I myself worked as an invasive species coordinator at a CISMA which is another topic that we'll be covering today. Uh, up north, where I worked for four counties covering invasive species concerns uh, with local outreach and education, which is something we try to do here at the Conservation District as well. So today, I have with us our local CISMA coordinator, who will be talking a little bit about what he does, how he does it, and how they impact the community for the good of our environment by fighting invasive species. Our local CISMA coordinator is named Matthew, Lind uh, Matthew Lindauer, and he's here to tell us just a little bit about what a CISMA does and how invasive species uh, can be, or why invasive species are important and what we can do to prevent their spread. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me, very happy to be here. Um, so I guess we'll take it from the top in regards to what a CISMA is. CISMA, C-I-S-M-A, is Cooperative Invasive Species Management Area and there's a handful of them throughout the state um, and throughout the country for that matter. We're the Central Michigan CISMA, and uh, we are in charge of five counties in the area. That's Gladwin, Gratiot, Isabella, Clare, and of course Midland, uh, where we're headquartered out of. So the goal of uh, what we are aiming to do, or what the government wants us to be doing, I should say, is to be looking after invasive species, whether they be plant or animal invasive species, and tracking where they are, where they're spreading, and how we can go about taking care of them. Awesome. For our viewers that aren't necessarily familiar with an invasive species, what would you say the most common definition would be? So, an invasive species is any non-native uh, plant or animal species that has entered its non-native area and uh, poses a potential threat or has the potential to cause harm. So, um, to give some examples of what is and isn't necessarily an invasive species, poison ivy, you get the rash, it spreads, 
but it's not an invasive species. It's native to the state, native to the area, so although we don't like it necessarily, and although it has the potential to cause harm, it itself is not an invasive species. So, um, as an example of what is an invasive species, we have autumn olive all throughout the state. I think that's maybe the worst uh, that we have in terms of spreading and just the amount of area that's been taken up by autumn olive. And we'll get into more about specifically what autumn olive is uh, later on, but um, that is not from here, that's from the uh, Eurasian region. It's come over here and uh, it has thorns on it and that's not the main hazard, although it is a hazard that that plant poses if you're out for a hike, but it's just taking over a lot of natural space that would otherwise be used to uh, grow young sapling plants. Mm. For example, if it's underneath a maple tree and the maple tree is dropping all of its seeds, but all of that space is already taken over by autumn olive plants, you're not gonna see those young maples sprout up and the next generation of native trees that we'd like to see mm. that serve a better purpose to the animals and environment are not gonna grow up because their spot has already been taken. So, sure. so invasive species, particularly in the case of plants, are actively displacing our native species. That's a great and concise way to put it, yeah. Absolutely. So I imagine that that would come with a lot of other ramifications too, um, simply by affecting the environment in a variety of ways, disrupting food webs, um, displacing habitat, removing habitat completely, and I imagine that would come at a cost. It does, it certainly does, uh, especially here in the fine state of Michigan, we have a lot of uh, agricultural um, things taking place, whether mm -hmm. it be the Christmas tree industry or, uh, you know, apples. Um, I mean, anything really, you, you can drive through, especially here in the Midland area and all throughout the state, I suppose, but there's cornfields uh, everywhere, you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, imagine if that's not tended to, and all of a sudden you have, again, we'll take it back to autumn olive that's spreading and setting up shop there in those mm -hmm. cornfields. There's nowhere for that stuff to grow. So not only do you have to uh, eventually plant that corn in that field again, you have to get rid of everything else that's moved in and mm -hmm. taken that place. So it's doubling the amount of work and time and cost uh, that goes into crop production and not not to mention the impact that it has on the animals that use these native species for uh, you know places to live things sure. to eat and and stuff like that breeding grounds yeah. so yeah they have a huge ripple impact I don't know that people really uh, consider the ramifications of having an area mm -hmm. taken over by invasive species so so they're a big deal so I'm really glad that we get to be talking about them today absolutely yeah I think it's definitely a topic that deserves more public awareness mm -hmm. uh, simply for the reasons you just described. There's a lot of hidden, uh, almost insidious effects that invasive species have. Uh, when I worked up north, we had a milkweed lookalike called black swallowwort. Mm -hmm. and I don't think we have it in Midland County, thankfully, um, but monarch caterpillars are adapted to eat milkweed. Mm -hmm. they're, they're built up with immunities to the toxins. They don't have the same immunity to the toxins of the black swallowwort lookalike. And so when the adult butterflies lay their eggs on the milkweed plants, the caterpillars actually die from ingesting the lookalike because the adults can't tell the difference. Yep. And I think when you put it in that light, there's something almost very um, imminent about the threat of invasives. Our butterfly population is negatively impacted by this plant that shouldn't even be here. Mm -hmm. And so I think you could apply that to a lot of different invasive species that we have over the state of Michigan and Midland County, I'm sure, as well. 
Absolutely, and you take that a step further. Now we don't have these butterflies. Now we're down on our pollinator population. And again, we see it come all the way back to how it affects us directly as people and consumers. Now there's fewer, you know, less pollination going on and we're losing flower species. And whether it's, again, apple trees, honey production, all sorts of things will drop down when you start seeing fewer of those native species in the area. So it really does ripple outward in a big way. Absolutely. And I'm sure, as all scientists do, we like to categorize things. And I noticed that we have different categorizations for different levels of invasive species when it comes to how threatening they are yeah. uh, to our economy, to our natural resources, and, and to other things that we hold dear. So I see we have watch list, detected, restricted, established, and then prohibited when it comes to invasive species. Would you care to maybe elaborate a little bit on those terms for people that might not be very familiar? Yeah, definitely. I'll do my best to break it down a little bit. So watch list species is anything that we think might be coming uh, into the area. And so, I mean, it's exactly that. It's a list of species that we say, keep an eye out for this right now. Spotted lanternfly is a mm -hmm. huge one. It's in states around Michigan, but it's not here yet. So that's a big one on our watch list right now. So it's not here yet, but it poses the potential to show up. So detective is another pretty straightforward one. Um, balsam woolly adelgid mm -hmm. uh, was on the watch list and uh, mid-August it was detected here in the state. So now that is okay. detected um, and that was Kent County. I okay. think they found the first instance of that here in Michigan. So detected is exactly that. It wasn't here and now it is verifiably. Mm. Um, restricted are things that are here in the state but are maybe not so pervasive um, sure. so th you know it is unlawful to possess or sell uh, some of these invasives for fear of them spreading so it's something that's here and we're keeping an eye on established um, an autumn olive buckthorn let's use a different example let's go with sure. buckthorn although it's very similar to autumn olive sure. it's everywhere and so that is considered established. You take a drive, you look at the roadsides, you see it there, and you know, can you fully get rid of it? Who's to say? It'd be a lot of work, but sure. you know, the short way to put it is, yeah, it's it's here and it's you know, it's rooted in pretty well. And then prohibited are things that are here. They're rooted, and um, there are penalties and fines associated with. Uh, you know, adding to the expansion of those plants. So sure. similar to restricted, but it's a combination of, you know, restricted, but with the pervasiveness of the established uh, species. That makes sense. Yeah, I remember I heard that someone was trying to sell Japanese knotweed, mm -hmm. which is a particularly nasty invasive species. It is. Uh, as, a, um, as a garden plant, I think a nickname that Japanese knotweed has is Michigan bamboo. So it <laughs> sounds native even in, yeah. in its nickname. Um, and that's a prohibited species. So the fact that people were trying to sell it, it got shut down really quick. Um, but I don't think invasive species need our help in spreading. No, no, they don't. Regardless of how much we inadvertently do help them spread. Yeah. And, that's, and that is something to mention about them, is a lot of them are decorative and objectively, you know, interesting looking plants sure. uh, due to their exotic nature. And mm. yeah, some people want to see those put in and we see some people that have them in their gardens and you know, we have to explain to them this is this plant here is an issue and they go, well, I, you know, I love this plant. I think it really ties my garden together and I'm not getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. And so technically there's nothing we can do uh, in that scenario, but we try and spread that information. So, right. yeah, that's that's a reason they get here is because people just plain old like them. They Absolutely. like the looks of them. And a lot of our native equivalents are just as beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, maybe people just aren't as aware of them. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So going back to 
I guess, the beginning of that list, watch list and detected. What is, I guess, the overall strategy for early detection? So, uh, sysmus are a big part of that early sure. detection. Um, we're always out there checking areas where we think things um, are likely to be found certain plants like different environments as mm -hmm. far as growing conditions so if we know that you know a given plant and this is true for animal species too but we focus on uh, plants mostly just because they're uh, a bigger issue sure. uh, right now and there's more of them and they're a little little sneakier sure. once they show up but um, we're out there looking for these plants the mm -hmm. missing app uh, is a good way uh, to do that we'll touch on that um, eventually too, but as far as watch list plants, you wanna catch them early on in the cycle. Um, there's a graph that they love to show people mm -hmm. and it has the, the curve upwards of the amount of species in an area and sure. then it compares that to the cost of uh, treatment and the likelihood of eradication and right. as that goes up, the cost of treatment goes up exponentially the amount sure. of damage those plants or animals pose goes up, um, and the likelihood of getting them completely eradicated goes way, way down. So, oh, I'm sure. Um, well, even going back to your original example of the buckthorn, mm -hmm. um, once you have buckthorn established, and even uh, on a local scale, but even on a, a large scale in the state of Michigan, it's going to be a lot harder to remove something like that that has very, very deep roots. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's very impervious to treatment as opposed to something like the blossom wool, the adelgid that you talked about, that it's here, but how, how much of it is actually here? Is yeah. it still stoppable? Yeah. And putting our limited funds and resources towards that species versus a species that we can manage and cut back at, but is most likely here to stay. Yeah, you know, hypothetically, if it is spotted on one tree, uh, you can quarantine that tree, mm. treat it if you really have to, cut the whole darn thing down and right. you know dispose of it properly. Sure. And if that is truly the only tree with that in the state, boom, we're done. It's back, you know, right. we're back to keeping an eye out for it. But right. if you kind of go, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, and you kind of teeter-totter back and forth for a bit mm -hmm. on what you want to do with it, it just is taking that time to spread. And it, again, that curve on the graph is just going up the longer you wait and the longer it's here undetected. Absolutely. And then you did mention a tool that people can use to help in the detection efforts. I believe you called it MISSIN. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the MISSIN app is a free application you can get on your phone. Um, and I believe that is all done through the state. I believe they put sure. that together. Um, but it's simple enough to use. You pull it up and it has a list of different things that you might be looking for, whether they be plants or animals. And you can go through the list. And if you think you've found something, you go ahead and you select that on the list, mm. you take a picture of the plant or animal in question, sure. and then that will uh, tag it and go on a map that people like myself and SISMAs and other invasive organizations can check and see where things are at and where they're spreading. And the more people we can have using that app, the more accurately we can be tracking what's happening with these species. So um, it's free, it's user-friendly, um, and it helps out a lot. The more sets of eyes and ears we have out there looking for these plants and recording these plants when they're found uh, that we don't want to call it easier because mm. uh, you know it's 
not an easy thing to take care of necessarily, mm -hmm. but uh, the better chance we have, I suppose would be a good way to say it, the better chance we have of treating and lessening the amount of invasive species that we're seeing. Absolutely. And MISIN, like SISMA, is another acronym. We scientists, we like our acronyms quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is this? Midwest, Midwest Invasive Species Information Network, yeah. I think. Did I get that one? I think that's right. And that is a lot to say. So <laughs> I, I think the acronym is justified. Yeah. Um, and pretty easy to remember as well. And the fact that there's a, a smartphone app for it makes it very user friendly. Yeah. Too. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. It's a great tool. Highly recommend going out and getting it on the phone. It's easy enough to do. Awesome. Well, moving away from detection um, and kind of into detection applied, we have those watchlist species you were mm -hmm. talking about. Why are watchlist species maybe more of a risk than species that don't quite make the cut for a watchlist species ranking? Um, that's a good question. There's a lot that goes into determining what it, you know, whether or not it's on the watch list. Um, and some of those factors include you know, how close is it in proximity to the state? Mm. What amount of damage does it, you know, pose mm -hmm. uh, to the state? Um, for example, there's, uh, um, what's the uh, sea lamprey? Mm. They're an invasive, mm -hmm. right? But saltwater, saltwater creature, we're not, we got lakes, we got freshwater. So mm -hmm. something you'd find in the ocean, although it could pose a huge risk, we're not necessarily going to be as concerned about it here in Michigan because we don't have an ocean or mm. something that isn't going to last the winter. We're not going to cause a big hullabaloo about that because those of us that live here in Michigan know it gets pretty cold. So if it's yes. a plant that can't overwinter, we're maybe not going to be as concerned. Sure. Um, in terms of the spotted lanternfly, this is a great example of something that goes to the watch list and, you know, gets a good top slot on there as far as awareness and press is concerned. It's in Pennsylvania and it's in Southern Ohio right now. Mm. And it likes to feed on uh, crop plants, you know, apple mm. trees and things like that. So we have a lot of those here. It's a big industry. It brings in a lot of uh, money to the state. Mm. So we see that map of where the lantern flies at. It's creeping in closer to the state of Michigan and it poses a risk in terms of our human health and economy just because of the damage it does to these crops. And next thing you know, it's at the top of this watch list species uh, list. Hmm. So we want to keep an eye on it. It's, uh, it's important to keep an eye on that list and make sure that, it's, that you know what's on there and where it's at in terms of the rest of the country and see how close it is. Absolutely. Would you say it's fair to say that the majority of watch list species are inadvertently spread by people? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I would, uh, especially in terms of the spotted, lan spotted lantern fly um, that'll cling on to, you know, any surface, really. Mm. It's an insect. Sure. And so if you're taking a shipment of lumber and bringing it up here to Michigan and, and there's a nest or, you know, an egg cluster or something of this spotted lantern fly or moving firewood's a great example, too. It could be even on a split log. Hmm. and you bring it up from Ohio after a camping trip or something, and now you've brought this species into the state. And sure. no one's doing it maliciously, I don't think. Mm -hmm. No one's doing it on purpose, obviously. Yeah, accidentally. Yeah, yeah. But um, effectively. Mm -hmm. and, that's, and that's why you have to be aware, because, again, no one's doing it on purpose. I don't think anybody means any harm, but if you're not aware that moving firewood poses a risk to 
introducing invasive species to the state, you, you know, you're not going to think about that. You're going to no. load your extra firewood in the back of your mm -hmm. car and head back home once you're done camping Absolutely. in whatever other state. So, you know, I remember back when Emerald ash borer was a, was a bigger deal than it is mm -hmm. now, um, simply because it's completely decimated our ash trees to the point where it's not as much of a concern, yeah. unfortunately. Uh, there's a sign at the Mackinac Bridge saying, do not bring Lower Peninsula firewood into Upper Peninsula firewood. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's something people don't think about. Like, oh, it's cheaper down by me. I'll buy it here yeah. and bring it with me on my camping trip rather than buying it locally. And that is inadvertently spreading a quarantined invasive species that you don't necessarily even know is in your firewood. Mm -hmm. And once it crosses the bridge, you're affecting a completely different landscape. And I think that's ultimately how it was spread. Yeah, and even the mindset of, oh, it's firewood, I'm going to burn it, whatever's on there is going to be gone in a little bit. You set that aside to dry next to the little fire pit you have mm -hmm. going on, and something's on there that's yeah. living. Maybe it's laying dormant because it's cold. It'll warm up. It'll crawl mm -hmm. off that log, and next thing you know, it's introduced. Absolutely. So, Things to be conscious of and things to think about. Yeah, absolutely. So what are some current state of Michigan watch list species examples, just so our viewers are aware of things to look for. Sure. Um, there's a handful of watch list species for um, aquatic plants. Um, there's Brazilian, Brazilian, some people say Elodia, some say Elodia. Okay. I've heard, you know, reliable sources say both and either. So uh, Brazilian Elodia is one that's an aquatic weed. Um, there's Hydrilla is very similar. Mm. Uh, and with the aquatic plants, what we see, the risk that they pose uh, with these two in particular is they grow up from the bottom and they grow these large mats on the top of the water. And next thing you know, you can't run a boat through there mm. and you can't fish in there. And sure. the other plants aren't getting lighter oxygen. Uh, sure. And so it just kind of starves everything else out and you have a waterway that can't be used for much because there's a giant mat of aquatic weeds on the top of it. So. Sure. And like you said, they're literally altering the light levels and oxygen levels that these fish are dependent on and other aquatic organisms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, parrot feather is another one, and it's not so much uh, completely submerged in the water like the other two. It kind of grows up in shallower regions and comes up at the top. And I think right now in the Detroit area, I want to say it was the Detroit River, although I, I could be mistaken. They, they've had a big problem with it, uh, with parrot feather down there, and um, it grows up. And uh, this one actually has, it poses issues with uh, waterfowl nesting, mm. similar to the purple loosestrife. We have a lot of that around here. Um, you know, it's an area where a bird would nest and lay eggs and kind of get safe and comfortable, but when those uh, little emptied out areas aren't there because it's been taken over by an invasive, they have nowhere to nest. So then you see those populations going down and mm. again the ripple effect that comes along with uh, losing a population of a species in Absolutely. an area. Uh, giant hogsweed is another one that we have. This is a, a pretty interesting plant which okay. uh, it, again it's an issue of this is an interesting looking plant. It grows I think 14 feet high. I mean it is truly wow. massive. It looks a bit like uh, Queen Anne's lace. Okay. Uh, and so, but huge, sure. prehistoric looking. So it's an interesting plant, and I don't see it really around here. That's good. Which is, <laughs> yeah, which is really good. 14 feet tall, I think we'd probably notice it. Yeah, and this has uh, in its sap, if you could call it that, the fluids going through the plant, 
cause photosensitivity on the skin. So if you're cutting this down and you're not aware of what it is, sure. you get some of the, you know, plant's juices on you. Next thing you know, if you're out in the sun gardening, that's gonna cause a large blister. Oh, wow. uh, if it gets in the eyes, it can cause blindness, temporary or permanent if it's wow. not treated. So this is one of the plants where, yes, it takes over areas that could be used by natives, but it poses an immediate and relatively serious uh, sure. threat to human health if not treated and taken care of properly. So that's another important piece of educating people on what these plants are and what they do and the hazard that they pose. So if you go to cut this down and you're not aware, you could end up in the hospital from what was a casual day of gardening. Absolutely. And having no idea that such an innocent looking plant could yeah. be capable of possibly rendering you blind. Yeah, I don't think people think about that a lot no. with their plants. You know, no. poison ivy, keep no. out for that, and probably a handful of others if you're really plant savvy, but mm. nobody thinks that cutting down a large plant or weed is going to cause right. their skin to blister up or blind them. Absolutely, which is why the public outreach component of what the Sisma does, I'm sure, is just so important. Absolutely. Uh, Japanese stilt grass. You know, to be honest, I struggle with my grasses a bit because grass is everywhere and they all look pretty similar that's why they're all in the same category of plant but uh, this is another one that spreads uh, pretty quickly and is is good at it and can take mm -hmm. over an area so this is one of those where we see a drop in native species sure. in the area because uh, stuff like stilt grass is taking its place or even uh, reed canary grass is another one of the grasses that we're keeping an eye on now although that's a bit more established uh, sure at this time. Yeah, a word that I've heard that is, I think, good to apply to something like Japanese stiltgrass, monoculture. You know, mm, one, yes. One plant encompassing everything. And unless you're a specific organism designed to thrive off this one species, your habitat's basically gone. Yeah. Um, because there's, there's no food, there's no cover, uh, and there's no physical space. Those are three important things for habitat. And so with this monoculture, you're basically losing these habitat elements important to wildlife survival. Yeah. Monoculture, that's a great word. That's, that's a, sisma, a sisma deep cut right there, <laughs> monoculture. It's good to know. Uh, it, and that's exactly what it is, that it used to be diverse. There used to be different plants that could be used for different reasons. And now it's just one thing hmm. that serves little to no purpose. So. And you lose your biodiversity as a result. Yes. Yep. Hmm. What about, uh, how do you say this one? I've always said kudzu. Okay. I've always said kudzu, although I suppose you could say kudzu. I'm sh okay. All sorts of things. Either I've, or. I've, I usually hear it as kudzu. And this is a vine, and it really gives this dystopian look. It crawls all over everything, covers sure. walls and surfaces and such. And this one, like many vines, will choke out native mm. trees and other smaller plants, and over time will just smother them to the point where they die off because they're not getting sure. the light or the nutrition that they need because the kudzu's uh, growing all over it. It looks like it has a very rapid growth rate. Yeah, yeah, and that's a lot of these, a lot of these do. I can't think of any off the top of my head where they are really kind of slow rolling. They show mm -hmm. up and they sprout up and they spread. And that's what they're good at. That's mm -hmm. why they're such a problem, yeah. Absolutely. So moving more towards the coast, uh, I see we have blue lime grass. It looks to me like um, our, our native dune grass, but obviously it's invasive, so it must be different. Yeah, um, and one of the things that we see with uh, plants in sandy areas 
is they get planted to help out with erosion mm -hmm. and folks don't necessarily pay super close attention to what they're planting in some cases they just know mm. oh you know I've got this kind of sloped sandy area out by my beach house and I kind of want it to stay put sure so the grass gets planted and then it spreads and overtakes the native mm. species um, and so it's technically serving a purpose but there are native species that serve the same purpose and others sure and in Michigan I know just being the the home of the Great Lakes, we have so many species that are dependent on Great Lakes beaches. Mm -hmm. And so when you alter that habitat even the slightest bit, we're losing out on habitat for our threatened and endangered species that call the Great Lakes home. Yeah, and uh, there's not that much that can grow no. in sand. Mm -hmm. So the things that are native that can, we really want to make sure those are the things that are growing in there right. as opposed to invasive species because right. it's such a limited amount of, of plants that can stand those conditions. Absolutely. This one, I feel like the, the, the problem is almost in the name, mile a minute weed. Yeah, very, uh, very fast grower and spreader. And it's one of those vines. It has a very distinct triangle leaf shape on it. Okay. Um, but there are also a handful of other uh, vines and plants that look somewhat similar, mm. although they're almost more arrowhead shaped. This is a very distinct triangle. So the issue with this is again spreading and smothering sure. like some of the other vines. And then moving away from plants for a minute here we have two insects that uh, you've mentioned the spotted lanternfly. Um, if you care to talk a little bit more about that since it's a watchless species as well as the Asian longhorned beetle. Yeah definitely we can get into both of those. Uh, just to recap on the spotted lanternfly they spread quickly they'll chew down the foliage and stuff on a tree in a big hurry. Mm. Um, and there's an invasive tree called Tree of Heaven mm. that they really like to nest in and spread in. So that's one of those things that we can keep our eye on Tree of Heaven because we know sure. that's something that they like to nest in. And we do have Tree of Heaven here in the state. Uh, so kind of interconnected pieces and things to be aware sure. of when tracking these species. Um, sure. That's a truly ironic case where the introduction of one invasive species leads to the introduction of a second invasive mm -hmm. that wouldn't be here necessarily without the introduction of that first invasive. Well, and if you think about it, you're taking trees and plants that compose an environment somewhere else, in this case the Eurasian region, mm. and introducing them to a different place, and the more of those species that are introduced and are established, you're just creating the same sort of environment and ecosystem mm. that these invasives originally came from until eventually there's the potential to reach a tipping point where it's no longer a traditional Michigan ecosystem but sure. a Eurasian ecosystem and all those invasives that are coming in from that area can thrive even better. Right. Uh, partly I'm sure because their natural predators haven't come along with them. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so that's that's spotted lanternfly. It's a pretty bug, but keep you know, keep an eye out for it. Please do report mm. it if you see it. It, it can so it has the potential to pose a very large issue to the state. Uh, Asian longhorn beetle is another interesting kind of looking beetle there, um, and it impacts maple trees. It's a bit like the um, emerald ash borer, but mm. this is larger, a bit easier to spot. An interesting looking beetle, black and white spots with the little sure. black and white antenna, but yeah, that'll take down the maple tree population if we don't keep an eye on it and keep it under control and 
next thing you know, less maple mm. trees, and now we don't have maple syrup, and it, it seems like something small. Okay, we don't have maple trees, no big deal, but mm. the habitat that they provide for nesting birds and the syrup industry here in the state are mm. all bigger than I think they get credit for. Right. Um, and those will just be gone if those trees are gone. So mm. you have to consider and, and be careful and mindful that these things have the potential to arrive here in the state. So you sure. gotta keep an eye out for them. Absolutely, so both of these insects have the potential to spread from trees that are familiar to them to our native trees mm -hmm. and decimate their populations. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Definitely something to be conscious of and to keep an eye on. And going back to what we were talking about with uh, the firewood, but maybe even applying that to nursery stock. Yeah, know, how, definitely. How far are we spreading plants? And what is maybe, like you said earlier, dormant on these plants that we don't necessarily acknowledge but what happens when the temperature changes Yeah, and the bug wakes up, that kind of thing, just being conscious of that. Absolutely. Uh, there are the adelgids. Uh, there's hemlock, woolly adelgid, and balsam, woolly adelgid. And uh, the balsam was the one that was just found here in the state that we talked about a little bit earlier. But again, these are boring insects. <laughs> not in the fact that they're not exciting. They yes. uh, bore <laughs> into the tree, mind you. Um, they born to these trees, just like the emerald ash borer that we saw in the state that totally cut down the um, ash tree population. Um, and they have the potential to do that same thing with uh, fir trees and with hemlock trees. Hmm. Yes, when I worked uh, as a sysma coordinator up in um, Emmett, Charlevoix, and Antrim counties, we actively surveyed for the hemlock woolly algae simply because uh, the, the theory is that it travels along the coast. Mm. And I remember surveying for the hemlocks, which is a beautiful native tree. We have so many hemlock trees in Michigan, and uh, the idea of them diminishing in any way is very sad. Uh, but I remember surveying for hemlocks and, think, and thinking as I looked around, because you have to survey for it in the snow, uh, because that's when the bug is dormant and inactive and easily spotted um, in the ovisac phase. And I remember looking around in snowy northern Michigan, all the hemlocks, and the hemlocks were greatly outnumbered by the amount of balsam firs. And it was so time consuming to survey all the hemlocks. And I looked around all the balsam firs, I'm like, well, at least I don't have to survey all <laughs> right. the balsam firs. And now here's the same bug yeah. with different species, similar appetite, and yeah. similar uh, threat affecting this other tree. And so it seems that we have the same exact issue just for a completely different species. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so, you know, we'll get out there and we'll take a look at some mm -hmm. of these trees. and. Uh, just being vigilant with that early detection you were talking about. Yeah, exactly. Because by the time you look around and you go, oh, this stuff is everywhere, hmm. you bring it back to that curve on treatment and cost and Absolutely. effectiveness. By the time you look around and really notice that it's spreading, it's you've got an uphill battle at that yeah, point. Yeah, it's here. Mm -hmm. And it's not going anywhere unless yeah. we do something about it. Absolutely. And then this one we did touch on. I know this was an issue um, definitely a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Emerald ash borer. Yep, another insect, it'll bore into the trees and one or two's maybe not a problem, but you know, they reproduce and they have more and next thing you know, there are thousands or, you know, depending on the size of the tree or the density of the population, millions of them and they're all making tiny holes into this tree and a tree can survive a few of those, but if it's getting just slowly eaten and hollowed out by these insects, it doesn't stand a chance. Mm. So, like you said earlier, this is, unfortunately a case where it got so bad and did what we were concerned it would do to such an extent um, 
I don't want to say that it's not a problem or something that we focus on anymore, but you know, had staken out so many of the ash trees at a certain point. Right. Just kind of go, well, I don't, I don't know, maybe we let the ash trees die out and we see about planting them again and rebuilding mm. once there's nothing more for these ash borers to, sure. to eat and to dine on. Because otherwise, sure. if you don't get rid of them completely and there's something for them to keep eating, they'll keep eating and spreading. Sure. So unlike the, uh, the Asian longhorn beetle that you referenced earlier, or even the spotted lanternfly, this is a specific species with a specific host. It, it's dependent on those ash trees. Yeah. And, you know, there are insects like the um, longhorn beetle. It likes maple trees and it mm -hmm. will eat those and target those, but they have the potential to have a wider diet and range of things that they'll eat. But there are some, yeah, like the ash borer. They, they're very specific in what they like and what they want to eat. Mm. So it kind of makes it easier to know and mm. to track because you know exactly where to look for them. Mm. Um, but that also means they're going after the ash trees exclusively and sure. you have to act in a hurry. Absolutely, it's a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This one, people in Midland County might be familiar with. I know a couple of years ago this was kind of a problem. Yeah, Feral yeah. hogs. And I just got a notification. Someone out there is using the Missin app okay. in the five county region. Awesome. And I got, uh, yeah, so <laughs> thank you to whoever that was. And uh, got a notification that they had spotted a feral hog. Okay. Um, and I forget exactly which county, but uh, feral hogs is exactly what it sounds. I mean, it's a pig, but it is not domesticated in any way. It's not a farm pig. It's a wild animal and they are pretty hazardous to people. I don't For know sure. how much you know about pigs, um, but you know, imagine something the size of the pigs yeah. you see at the fair covered in fur and now it's mm. grown the little tusks on the yeah. underjaw there, the bottom jaw, and um, it's got an attitude problem. Yeah, so. <laughs> not to mention pigs are pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, they are, they're crafty and uh, they'll, they can be aggressive and they root up fields and crops in a hurry. You would not believe how quickly they can uproot an entire lawn or field or something. Sure. They get those snouts and they start looking for something and they really tear it up. So uh, these aren't a huge problem. We don't see or hear a ton about them, but I know Texas uh, has big issues hmm. with feral hogs and it's gotten to the point down there they've kind of opened the floodgates in terms of disposing of those okay. hogs. They basically said, well, get, you know, get creative. Sure. with getting rid of these things. We just want them gone. So we're not nearly to that point here, but every sure. now and then you do hear reports of them. So Sure, just something to be aware of. Absolutely. Now, moving away from the watch list a little bit, um, because a lot of these, it sounds like we're still in good shape, at least here in Midland County, where maybe it's been spotted once or maybe it's not been spotted at all. Mm -hmm. But as far as local issues of concern for invasives. Just because we don't have watchlist species here doesn't mean we don't have other invasives. Just to be aware of yeah. uh, for our viewers, what are some of the more common ones that people might see on a daily basis without even knowing it's an invasive species? Yeah, so some I've touched on already, autumn olive, buckthorn. There's two types of uh, buckthorn and there's some differences on telling those, but we can get into that at another time, I suppose. Uh, garlic mustard is a smaller mm. one. A lot of the things we've talked about so far are kind of woody shrubs, small trees and such. But the garlic mustard is a small herbaceous sort of plant and it gets about you know, yay high or so and it's got a two year growing cycle. Once small and leaves one year, just little leaves, mm. and the next it'll get the stalk. And it's technically edible, oh. uh, but that's something if you look around 
I bet you most folks have it on their property at some place yep. in kind of the more woody areas and even along my fence line, you know, mm -hmm. I, it's there. Sure. The buckthorn and uh, autumn olive and garlic mustard are all things I've seen around my property. Um, sure. And uh, Japanese knotweed sure. we've talked about and that's pretty distinct if that's growing, if you have a big bamboo looking sort mm. of plant growing in a big cluster. Um, that's probably what that is. Japanese barberry is another one that we see a lot in the wooded areas, and that has very small needle-like thorns. Uh, that's something you want to be careful getting sure. rid of that. That's an ornamental plant. A lot of people plant that intentionally, don't realize what it is. Mm. Um, so uh, you mentioned the swallow warts earlier, I do believe. That's another vine. And I haven't seen a ton of that myself personally, but I do know that it's out there and okay. we do occasionally hear about it, but it's not something that I run into all the time. Sure. Uh, but it's another instance of choking out other species mm. and taking over the area. Phragmites, I bet you everyone, if you've been out to the waterways mm -hmm. or driven by a little roadside ditch, you've seen mm -hmm. Phragmites, a big tall kind of wheat looking plant with a little tuft sure. at the top of it, a big tall grass there. Um, and uh, honeysuckles are another one of the woody shrubs. And there's a whole list of different honeysuckles. Hmm. And I won't get into all of the details there, but the short version is if you cut a stem on a honeysuckle plant and they have the kind of teardrop shaped leaves and they get sure. little clusters of berries or pairs of berries mm -hmm. depending on the species, you cut one of those stems the non-native ones are hollow on okay. the inside. Uh, not in a big branch, mind you, but on the smaller stems jutting sure. out from the larger branches. You cut those, they'll be hollow on the inside. There'll be a little hole. The native stuff, it goes all the way through. So okay. that'd That's be a nice quick, little trick to know. Yeah, quick way to check that out because Absolutely. there's four or five different, at least, non-native uh, honeysuckle here. So as opposed to going through and trying to find exactly what it is and cut off a little bit of the stem if you can and sure. check the inside there is probably the easiest way to do that. Uh, purple loosestrife, hmm. another big one. We ran into that a lot when we did a survey of the Titabawasi River. Sure. That uh, messes around with duck nesting grounds quite a bit. Okay. Taking over real estate for native plants uh, as well. And uh, knapweed, um, knapweed and um, crown, crown vetch are two that kind of get the purple flowers on them and they're sure. you know they're pretty enough and they seem harmless but if you see them and you don't do anything about it the next season they will have taken over they spread in a hurry and mm. uh so so those are two that i see a lot of the place if mm. we're talking some of the smaller prettier decorative plants sure so there's a good handful anyway seems like there's a good overlap and maybe this there's a reason for this between um the aesthetic, beautiful side of the plant, and then, oh, but it's invasive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people at the surface level might think, oh, well, I don't care if it's invasive. Like something like a purple loose stripe. It paints the borders of the river in this really beautiful purple color. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're necessarily aware of the fact, well, did you know that the price you're paying for that purple is pretty high because it's removing everything else? Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's a, actually a program that's starting up, and they're in the process of, of, I think, trying to spread throughout the state, uh, it's called Go Beyond Beauty. Hmm. They do similar work to uh, the Sismas, but they're more focused on, as you said, the decorative plants. Sure. Sort of the lawn ornament 
type of plants sure. and um, there's a good brochure actually if now's a good time to yeah, absolutely uh, this was sent out uh, as part of the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative and it's just a pamphlet and it has a it unfolds but I won't do that now but it unfolds and on the back it lists all the different decorative plants that we have here in the in the state the invasives that people like to use and then it'll list alternatives so awesome it's stuff that looks similar has a similar function and can grow in similar conditions to these decorative non-natives that people tend to plant so that's a great awesome. resource we have a bunch of those we have all kinds of these little uh, pamphlets actually so if you ever want information on just about any invasive you you let me know because I've got them absolutely I think a lot of people would be interested just to know what good alternatives are um, because I think once people know why it's an issue, I, I like to think most people want to do the right thing. I think uh, so. I think a lot of people might not know that a lot of invasives are formed simply from an ornamental in their backyard that mm -hmm. they think looks great there. Yeah. All it takes is a bird or seeds being dispersed by wind and suddenly it's in the woods next door and suddenly it's everywhere in town. Yeah. And I think, I'd like to think that if people knew, they would, they would plan alternatives and, and do the right thing. Yeah. And that, that brings up a good point, too, is that it's not always humans picking it up Absolutely. and spreading it from one area mm -hmm. to another. I mean, there are a ton of factors that are outside of our control that can lead to the spread of this stuff, Absolutely. like a bird eating a berry, and then, you know, its droppings have the seeds in them, and, and now it's it spread that way. I mean, it's yeah. happening, and you don't even know it. So to have it at all, you're increasing the risk of it spreading exponentially. Absolutely. So going off of that, just things to be aware of when buying plants for our viewers that are very uh, into nursery stock and, and very aware of uh, the plants that they want in their garden. Um, what, what should they be looking for? Well, you wanna be asking questions. You wanna be mindful. There are certain uh, trigger words or phrases that uh, you can look for if it spreads easily, grows in a variety of conditions, sure. fast growing. These mm. are all things that we would use and attribute to invasive species in a negative light, but if you think it's a native and pretty plant, those are all things you kind of like to hear. Yeah. But be mindful if you're hearing that about plants in the description, um, you know, grows in a variety of conditions. Mm. Well, that's, you know, that can pose a big risk. That means it can spread everywhere and do so in a hurry. So there are certain phrases like that you want to be mindful for. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, you know, if you're going to a nursery and they seem mm. pretty knowledgeable, sure. don't be afraid to ask, hey, where does this plant come from originally? Sure. What can you tell me about it? Uh, and if they don't know, they don't know, but there's a handful of, everybody walks around with a search engine in their pocket now. So right. they give you the name of the plant, pull out your phone, do a little bit of research if you're not sure. Absolutely. Can't hurt. Yeah, absolutely. And then in that in that same thought process of, of what people can do in a citizen science approach beyond just buying plants, what are some what are some good activities people can do just consciously to, to minimize the spread and the impacts of invasive plants? This is gonna sound silly. You wanna be cleaning stuff off. I know sure. whether it's a shovel or uh, you know, the wheels of a tractor or your boots, uh, clean up after yourself. If sure. you have uh, a shovel and it, you're digging in one area and there's some dirt left on that shovel, there is a potential that there are seeds in that soil sure. of, uh, could be native, could be non-native seeds. Um, and you go and dig in another location and there's that dirt left over. Sure. So what do you do with the shovel? You put it in the ground, you plunge it into the soil and some of that dirt's gonna break off from the other site. And if sure. there's seeds in there, you're spreading it that way. Or Absolutely. if you're out hiking, uh, mm -hmm. we have boot brushes 
uh, sure. that we give out to people. And it's exactly as it sounds. It just has stiff bristles on it and a little uh, kind of metal piece on the back to dig into the grooves sure. and such. And just get the dirt off your boot before sure. going from one location to another. Because again, there are seeds in that dirt or pollen mm -hmm. in that dirt. And you take it from one location to another and you've become a uh, vector or a spreading agent sure. for these seeds. Without so even trying. Yeah, yep. clean up after yourself. You yep. know, it's just, we, we've all heard it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, boating as well. Uh, boaters actually uh, have been a pretty knowledgeable group from what I've seen on invasives. Good. The state uh, and other agencies have done a good job of getting the word out to them on the impact that they play in spreading invasives. But, you know, you have your your tanks and they're taking in water while you're out there or if you have one of the uh, jet skis they'll take in the water and push sure. it out and they've got the pump in there clear that stuff out uh, zebra mussels are a big one here in the state yeah. um, and they can get in there and you won't even be able to see them necessarily and they get on the inside of these ballast tanks and such sure and then you empty them out in another location and next thing you know you've introduced a new species uh, sure. an invasive species to another waterway and uh, that's waterways are a whole different issue in terms oh, of I'm sure. the spread of invasives and how we go about tackling those but um, yeah cl clean up wash off your wash off your boat if you can any mm. debris and plant matter and stuff you see on the hull of your boat Clean it off before you put it back in the water again. Absolutely. Let it dry out in between. Don't hop back and forth between a bunch of different lakes in a day. Sure, sure. That's all it takes is to go from one lake to another. Mm -hmm. and suddenly there's mussels there that weren't there before yep. or any other invasive or like the plants you were talking about yeah. earlier, I'm sure. It only takes one. I mean, it really does. Yeah. It's we all we all share a part in slowing this spread. Absolutely. And, but if you don't know, you can't take those steps. Sure. So once they're here, say someone has an invasive on their property, what should they do about it? They have a few options. Uh, the first step I would recommend, get out that missing app we talked about, mm -hmm. report it on there so that we know. Um, get in touch with your CISMA. If you don't know sure. who your uh, CISMA is, who you should be getting in touch with, because again, there's several throughout the state, uh, feel free to get in touch with me and I can put you in the right direction there. Awesome. Uh, and I think my contact info should be here either at the mm -hmm. beginning or the end of this, but at any rate, I can help you out if you're not sure who to go to. And we can give you some suggestions on how to go about getting rid of it, uh, when you should be getting rid of it, because certain plants, sure. you know, if they're flowering or they have their seeds going and you go to take it out, now you're shaking it yeah. and all the seeds are dropping and you've created a seed bank Sure. and it'll just grow back. So uh, we can help direct people on how to go about treating and removing these plants. Hmm. We have tools that we rent out. We have a tool crib. Um, awesome. We have a handful of different things, uh, all the way from little handheld things to get a grip and pull out uh, some of the smaller plants to a great big chain with kind of metal teeth on it that you okay. wrap around the trunk of a tree, hook it up to a tractor or a truck and sure. pull it out. Uh, on the more dainty end, we have a knotweed injector that's uh, has a needle at the end and a little canister and you put your herbicide in sure. there and you can inject those into the stem and sure. it'll kill it off that way. Um, so That's awesome yeah, that you guys have resources for the community like that. It is nice, yeah. We'd love to see people take uh, more advantage of them as opposed awesome. you don't have to go and buy a, oh, I don't know off the top of my head how much some of these oh, I'm sure. things are to use it sure. for a weekend, you know, let us know and we'll sure. let you know what we have and if it'll do the job you're looking to Absolutely. have it do, we'd love to help. And I'm sure you could help 
even beyond that, just helping point them in the right direction of the tool they should be using. Absolutely. I know depending on the invasive, you can't treat Phragmites the same way you would treat a different species, mm -hmm. simply because uh, it's funny to use this kind of word for a plant, but you could actually anger it and make it come back and uh, full force, even bigger than it was before, if you yeah. go around treating it the wrong way. Yeah, that's right. Um, always, if you're not sure, call. Absolutely. It's that simple. We'd love to help. And I see there's three main types of treatments here. We have mechanical, burning, and chemical, and I'm sure that just depends on the species that you're using. It does. Uh, the treatment on. Species, time of year, uh, how much of it is there, um, all sorts of things. And they all have different approaches and different things you might need. If you want to do it mechanically, you want to pull it out, that's simple enough to do. You shouldn't sure. need much in the terms of, in the way sure. of special conditions to do that. Um, if you wanted to take the burning route, there's permits that you need before you can go about lighting things on fire. Absolutely. So again, always, <laughs> always important. Yep. Check on that before you start lighting things up. Uh, and same deal with uh, chemical and uh, you know herbicide applications. Some of that stuff is available to the public to use. Roundup awesome. is one that uh, you know is widely available, but not all of them are. So double check and take the proper precautions if you choose to go the chemical route. Absolutely. We'll do that. So if people want to get involved with the CISMA, it sounds like you guys do a lot for the community, a lot of outreach, a lot of education. How would they go about doing that? Uh, the first step would be getting in touch with myself. We also have a website, cmcisma.org, awesome. Central Michigan CISMA. Um, and we have a Facebook page that we update pretty readily, phone number, and an email. So just about any way short of a smoke signal, you can get in touch with us, and awesome. we encourage you to do so. We are in the process of a handful of different things at this time in terms of surveying and treatment and mitigation efforts. So we always have awesome. something going on. So Awesome. That's what, great to hear. Yeah. That's awesome. And it sounds like um, one of the more later things you guys did, you mentioned it earlier, is that survey on the Titabawassee River. Yeah. Uh, which is something we're excited about. Um, that will be our next show. We'll be talking about the survey on the Titabawassee and kind of the different plants and invasives that you guys found, um, especially after the, the dam failure mm -hmm. uh, last year. So we appreciate that show, and we would encourage our listeners, if you found this show interesting, to check out uh, that next episode as well. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Matthew, so much for taking the time and uh, just educating our listeners a little bit more about invasives and sismas and the work that sismas do is kind of being that local point person of contact when it comes to invasive species concerns and management and outreach and education. Sounds like you guys have your hands full with a lot of different things. We do. It's uh, good job security in, a, in an unfortunate way. Absolutely. <laughs> so You're not running yeah. out of invasives anytime soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to spread some of this information and, and get it out to people that might not know about it. This is exactly the sort of stuff we're looking to do. So Absolutely. thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, as conservation districts, we're happy to help and partner in any way we can to get the news out about conservation issues to the public. That's why we exist. That's why we do what we do. And uh, we appreciate your viewership and your support. And we look forward to next time on Conservation Matters.
This program is presented by a community producer through Midland Community Television. The City of Midland and MCTV are not responsible for the content of the program. The views presented do not necessarily represent those of the City of Midland or MCTV. If you would like to produce your own program, contact MCTV at 837-3474 or access our website cityofmidlandmi.gov slash MCTV. We hope you enjoy the following presentation.